everyone. So got a fantastic guest today. Today's guest is the author of this amazing book that I will selfishly say I've stolen a lot of strategies from over the years and applied it to medical devices. A lot of people ask me, where do I come up with these strategies, especially on the growth side? And it's really from this gentleman here, Mark Roberge, who has written the book, The Sales Acceleration Formula Using Data, Technology, and Inbound Selling to Go from Zero to 100 Million. Many of you may ask, where did he go from zero to 100 million? He is the gentleman who is the first chief revenue officer at HubSpot, the, um, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, SaaS companies out there, especially for, mar- for marketing, who happens to also own a CRM. And what I will say is that I knew this was going to be an epic and very uh, legendary book because the foreword was by a legend himself, Neil Rockman, who's the author of Spin Selling. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Omar. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And you're, you're joining us from Boston? Yes, unfortunately. Awesome. It's, awesome. it's uh, getting to that rough time of the year for us. <laughs> I, I, I bet, man. I bet. Well, you know, Mark, before we jump into it, there's a lot of things I do want to cover for the audience that uh, involves like growth and, of course, your 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 approach to to how you think about revenue. But tell tell us a little bit about what you're doing now since you have uh, moved on from HubSpot. And you know, for those of you who who don't follow, I mean, HubSpot started as a small SaaS company out in Boston uh, many many years ago, and now they're publicly traded. I think their market cap's a little over eight or nine billion. So quite a success story. So what what are you up to these days? Yeah, that was the last time I um, had a full like operating role on the entrepreneur side. So I did entrepreneurship for almost 20 years. And then after we took HubSpot public, was recruited into Harvard Business School to teach, build and teach the the first sales courses over there. Um, so that's been a blast. I've been doing it since for six years or so. And, uh, and actually, um, one of the things that attracted me to it was I was, um, I would, you know, I, I was encouraged to stay active in practice and, and I love startups. So I, I basically spent a few years parachuting into one startup every quarter for one day a week and helping them with what we're talking about today, you know, the, the, the growth, uh, the growth strategies and the go-to-market strategies. And that eventually, um, you know, kind of evolved into a venture capital firm, which I started with uh, a gentleman from Bessemer named Jay Poe three years ago called State Shoe Capital. So we're the first VC firm running back by CROs and CMOs and VPs of sales. Um, almost every, um, large software uh, company, um, we have the, at least some representation from their executive team as our backers. We have 150 um, CROs and CMOs um, that are investors in our firm. Um, everything from, you know, Asana to uh, Dropbox to, you know, um, Snowflake. Yeah, um, all, yeah, a lot of the big ones these days. Um, so it's just a, a remarkable, you know, Zoom or just a remarkable crew uh, behind us. And so that's what I'm up to, kind of, you know, the stuff we're talking about today, continuing to to um, implement those strategies this time from the investor side. That's fantastic. Fantastic. And, you know, I got to say, um, I've said this many times on my show, uh, as you can see behind me, I have, I have a lot of books. Some of the best books were actually learned, you know, it made me better as a business person. They weren't business books. They're usually books on psychology or history. Most business books are absolute garbage these days. Yours is fantastic for a few reasons. Number one, it's it's very well, uh, the framework is fantastic. It makes sense. There's no fluff in it. And then the other thing, which um, I was really impressed by, because usually you see this from like really large research firms who decide, hey, let's write a book. But you, you've done this framework at close to, I think, 15 or 20 companies, correct? Where you were testing this before you actually brought it over to HubSpot. 
Um, yeah, no, actually I created it at HubSpot, but I've used it in a lot of different scenarios. I would say, I mean, it depends on what we define as implement. Um, but if, if it's, um, you know, mentoring a young entrepreneur and then they follow it, I mean, we're talking hundreds of, of companies have, have used it, um, over the years. And, and part of that is how we invest too. I've got a new framework that we can talk about as well, um, that I'll be writing another book on. It's publicly available, Oh. Um, called the science of scaling that kind of like, um, uh, you know, deals specifically on the the very early phases. But, you know, let's not, you know, I think we should, we should stay focused on the sales acceleration formula and I can give you pieces of it. No. And actually that's, so I'm, I'm really happy you mentioned that um, because part of it was, you know, I think, so me being in the med tech and biotech space, yeah, you know, exactly. we have a lot of things that are focused on, you know, mainly devices, hardware and everything. Our, our industry is changing because especially with, with surgical robotics, we've realized that we have, you know, the best way to add multiples to the valuation of our companies is we have to get, start getting involved more with data and software, yeah. right? But for most marketers in space, they don't really know where exactly to start. So I think that might be a good place, you know, since you just mentioned that you're writing this new book. So for any anybody, whether it's an entrepreneur or marketer, when it comes to thinking about growth and revenue, What's the first place you should start in terms of how you think about this kind of a framework? Yeah. Yeah. So this, this particular framework I've been working on for a couple of years, um, and it is taught at Harvard and MIT. It's called the science of scaling. And it, it, it really originated from my work in the software arena. Uh, and I found it to be applicable outside of that as well. So we can bat around with this. It'd be interesting, Omar, like how applicable it is to med tech. I found with, with the healthcare arena, um, they actually already do this stuff pretty well, um, but we can kind of bat around and learn as we go here. Um, so one of the things that the big mistakes that I find with, with entrepreneurs that are thinking about scaling their business is they do it prematurely and they, they're really confused on how fast to scale. And that's really what this framework um, was meant to, to um, indicate is when should you scale sales and how fast? Uh. Okay, so, and and there's a three, there's a sequential three, um, three phases that that I kind of take people through: product market fit, go to market fit, growth and moat. Okay, and so we can kind of unpack those briefly. So when you ask a entrepreneur, hey, when when do you think you should scale your business? Like when do you think you should scale sales? You know, most of them say when you have product market fit. Like that, mm-hmm. that is a pretty well understood term over the last twenty years. Thanks to say Eric Reese and and Steve Blank probably coined it. Um, Eric from the Lean Startup Arena. Um, however, when you ask an entrepreneur, okay, great, when do you have product market fit? You'll get ten different answers. Right. And, and honestly, I don't think the answers are are that good. To be quite frank, in terms of telling you when to scale, a lot of times they'll be associated with revenue. Like I have product market fit when I have like a million in revenue. Right. Um, which. I think that's really, that's not good at all. I mean, that's more like market message fit, something like that. Um, and it's misleading, people, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like some people say like, um, you know, it's when we have, um, you know, five customers that like our product and that's fine. It's just not, I don't think it's it's comprehensive enough to say like, okay, we, we have product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there's a gentleman named Sean Ellis that, I think has the best working definition out there, which is um, when 40%, when you survey your customers 
and 40% say they can't live without your product or something like that. Yeah. And he had a great question. Uh, I think that's from his book, Hacking Growth, where he said, mm-hmm. you, know, you serve your customers and it's like, if we're going to take away the product, how much pain would it have? Yes. That, that exactly. tells you something, right? Yeah. That, what's nice about that is it's quantitative, right? He's saying 40, right. 40% do. And then it's, um, it's more associated with like the value of the product than like revenue and stuff like that. Absolutely. Okay? So, so, so the problem with that I have with it though is surveys are just riddled with false positive information. Um, That's I mean, the you've, thing you just said is it's false positive. Yeah, you you filled nice. them out, Omar. I mean, like you know, when when an entrepreneur sends you a survey about their product, you're super nice. You know what I mean? Like you're just it's their baby, and like so I I have a problem with that. So so the first phase here, product market fit. You know, I believe the best metric, and again, I deal mostly in software, is is retention, right? Because a lot of software is on subscription. I don't, I don't know if that we can see if this fits into biotech, but it you know, if I'm if if I'm talking to a software company, I'm like, okay, you have product market fit when you have strong retention. Now, the problem is in our arena, um, it often takes. If I sign up like a dozen customers this quarter or a dozen customers this month. Um, it takes me a year to understand what my retention is, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't have that time mm-hmm. when we're when we're in startup arena. So, what what the the trick here is to to find your leading indicators mm-hmm. to retention. And so, like at Slack, they did um, when when a company sends two thousand team messages, um, then then that's a, most of those people would stick around. If they don't, then they they cancel it, at at Dropbox. If they if they back up their their device within one hour at HubSpot. I know this is ours because we statistically studied it. If they use five or more features in the whole in the whole system um, within sixty days, right? And so these are the, that's that's a better definition. Like if eighty percent of your customers that you sign up use five or more features within sixty days, how precise is that? You know what I mean? And it's so simple, and it's such a better north star for the business than let's get to a million in revenue. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think I love, so this is again, um, why I have really gravitated to it towards your work because it's not that it's like even contrarian, but it's, it's different what people see. And I think for most entrepreneurs, especially in the startup world, it's so hard to, to, you know, your baby's going to be ugly no matter what, but to get a little bit of traction or everything, it's like, Hey, look, we got revenue and growth, but the harder question is to ask like, well, how much retention you have in the, in the, at least in the biotech world, if you look at, for example, surgical robotics, the question isn't around retention, but it's similar. It's around, okay, you've, you've implemented X amount of surgical robotics across the U.S. What's your utilization rate? Yes. Like, are, are, is it being yes. Because who, who exactly. cares if you place a bunch of robots? Right. The, the key to scaling the business and going from uh, you know, $100 million to a billion-dollar company is, is it being used? And I think in the software world, it's, being, it's retention. And I guess yeah, that needs to be the north star. So I'm glad to hear like you're seeing that in in your arena, but that needs. Well, to be the I'm first trying to implement start. it. I'm trying to drive it as much as I can. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I guess can you talk about when you mentioned a leading indicator? This is because tell me why churn is a lagging indicator. Why is that? Well, at least yeah, in our in our arena in software, like you know, a lot of people sign one year contracts. They don't churn for like a year, right? So, and even if it was on monthly, like it's not like they. They're not even going to churn in the first two months, but that's how fast we have to learn. Like mm-hmm. if I'm saying product market fit is the first stage and product market fit is how well you are at retaining your customers, 
Mm-hmm. But we need to understand this stuff within like 30 or 60 days. And so people just don't turn that fast. And creating creating the leading indicator is like, that's where like, I think the innovation has. And I hope that more and more of the industry talks about like, what's your lead indicator of customer attention? In the, in the, in the zero to a million dollar journey, that needs to be like the first slide in the deck for the board. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? And I don't even think a lot of companies define it. And so as no. I've kind of worked with companies on it, there's, I don't think there's a universal one. Maybe you'll see patterns, Omar, in your arena in, in medical device on like utilization. That's a good one. But I, I, I do think they take the shape of P, P percent of customers do e-event within T time, mm. right? So like 70% of customers, you know, utilize your device once a week um, within a month of purchasing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, that would be a good, good definition. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that you mentioned in, in your book and you've, and you've spoken about is, you know, and especially in a startup, you know, a lot of people who leave big corporate, you know, companies like Johnson, Johnson, Medtronic, et cetera, they come to the startup world. The one thing I tell them is, is that look like there's a, there's a, an abundance of things to work on. And the key is knowing what to work on now. That's, that's the most important thing because you have exactly. resources. So you talk about working on the right things and you specifically have mentioned, you know, the idea around working around customer success, right? Which is different than what you hear from a lot of other people, which is like, hey, you know, how do you, how do you scale growth, scaling and growth and revenue and blah, 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 all this stuff. But you start with customer success. Why is that? Can you, can you dig a little deeper in there for me? Yeah, just because of this. Like, I, I don't think you have a business that like it's all about starting at the end and the cus- consistent customer value creation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you start with, say, how do I put this? You just, there's so many leaky buckets out there. You know what mm. I mean? There's so many people that start with sales and you sign up like a hundred customers, but then 50 of them quit after a year. This mm. is not a business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would you rather sign up, you know, 20 customers a month and you've got a good sales machine going, um, but you lose half of them over a year? Mm. Or would you rather sign up, you know, five customers a month, but you keep 90%? I mean, right. the former is not a business and the latter is. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. That's where you got to start, especially like these days, this is, it's very new thinking that we're trying to like catch up to because, you know, especially in the world of, of software. And I don't know how you're seeing it in the, in the sort of med tech world, but, um, you know, when we sold software pre-internet, like pre 20 years ago, Mm. um, People, it was all million dollar stuff and it was deployed on servers in your base, in the basement of your company, this right? And so there was no, there was no churn. It was all on-premise software. Mm-hmm. So there was no churn. It was all about the contract. Uh-huh. And then we had, the internet came about and then SaaS came about and suddenly like you didn't have to buy a bunch of servers to load your floppy disk software on top of, you just clicked it, you know, it was all in the cloud. Right. And so we're still catching up to like what all that means. It, all of a sudden it was like, holy cow. You can sell this month to month or year to year on a subscription. That's cool. Holy cow. You can sell this over the, I don't have to go visit my customers. I, my, my prospects, I can actually sell this over the phone and over zoom, mm-hmm. like through demos. Holy cow. I can like adopt this in one minute. And, and, and suddenly people realize, oh my gosh, this is all about retention because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so easy to adopt this stuff, but it's also easy to leave. Right. And so and, and so we've got this whole thing, like the subscription economy has exploded beyond just software. I mean, I bet you, you and I both like 
consume our music on a subscription, maybe our razors on a subscription, sometimes our food on a subscription. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, you know? And why do you think the, the market has, has started to, you know, trend towards this? Like, you know, behavior change doesn't happen. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I feel like it's, I mean, even in Amazon, I mean, I, I was ordering toothpaste and Amazon yeah. trying to convince me. And, and I, yeah. and I did it because I was like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I need toothpaste every month. So I was like, let me just set it and forget. Why, why do you think? Yeah, that- most of the time things like this start with the buyer preference. And I think the buyer preference might be, no one's actually asked me this. So, so I'm just kind of riffing, but yeah. Um, I think it I think it starts with investor preference and and like just management team preference because a subscription a subscriber is just so much more it's just an easier business. You know what I mean like other other than like trying to get people to buy and buy and buy again. Yeah. If you just the predictability of it. The street loves it and I think a lot of business and fortunately, you know, invest uh consumers kind of like it too. Yeah, you know, but I, I don't think this one started with the consumer preference. Maybe it did on like um, on the software side because it was like, yeah, if I had to choose between a one million dollar purchase one time mm-hmm. versus p- paying you folks like a hundred thousand a year, yeah, I'd much rather do it that way. So it it started there in the software arena, but I think the reason why it's being thrown down our throat everywhere else with food and music and razors is it's just a healthier business model, and investors like it, and the management teams like it. And you know, you know what, Mark, and it and it shows how, you know, how correct you were in 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 the um, in the philosophy and, and and approach in your in your book, because I think seated in there is a story around retention. Because at the end of the day, your customer acquisition costs for any of these subscription models are higher, but once you have somebody, the retention is a whole lot better, right? And I think there yep. there has to be something around that as well. Yep, exactly. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, one thing I think I'll mention to my audience is that again, in, in our arena in healthcare, a lot, we're seeing a lot of trend towards whether it's hardware and devices developing uh, software, or even there's a lot of uh, SaaS companies that have now seen healthcare and says, Hey, this is this really outdated um, uh, industry. Let's go in there. And I think one of the things that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs will have to struggle with is that in healthcare, you know, the contracts are much, much bigger. And so it's kind of a set and forget it. So I think there's this tendency or there's this um, trap where you might have really good retention. You might not have bad churn, but in reality, it's just because a hospital, you know, is using yeah. a software and they buy and leave it. I think the next step to that retention model is to say, well, what's your utilization rate? Yes. I think that's critical. I mean, yeah, you do find a lot of, um, there's some interesting industries that, um, the retention is just naturally strong, even if they don't even use your product. Nonprofit is a great example. Like once you're in their budgets, like they they don't really remove it often. Um, like education, government, right? These are much they're hard to sell into. Very hard. Um, but once you get the customer, the stickiness is amazing. Um, but I, I don't think I'd, you know, <laughs> I, I'm still very uncomfortable <laughs> with that. Um, you know, if if I have a very low return churn but low like average utilization i'm super uncomfortable with that because then i'm worried about like referenceability and word of mouth you know what i mean there's that's the other big thing that's happened here is like every single buyer has a big megaphone called social media and the internet and it's not hard if you're evaluating a vendor to go online and find a customer that's using it and call and reach out to them and if they 
It's like, oh yeah, we bought this and we don't really use it. Like that's that's the beginning of the end. It, it's the kiss of death. It really isn't yeah. even. I mean, you know, my I I kind of uh, go back to because that's kind of where I I, I first uh, uh, cut my teeth is surgical robotics. But you know, you mentioned it earlier with SaaS, but in surgical robotics, my my philosophy has always been is that for a quarter, I would rather find you know three hospitals that become centers of excellence and they're using the robot. 80, 90, 100% of the time yeah. versus selling 10 robots. And a lot of them are just sitting in the corner in the closet, you know, because then, you know, people, people talk, whether it's through social media or at conferences or anywhere else, it's like, Hey, how do you, how are you enjoying that technology? It's like, eh, we use it whenever. And it's just yeah. the kiss of death. And I think that I've seen a lot of uh, uh, robotic companies and, and med tech companies where the first few quarters is like, they're blown up. You're hearing that they're selling left and right and everything. But then a year later, they're struggling because it's like nobody uses that technology. They were really good, that yeah. really talented salespeople that got it in, but the customer success that wasn't there. So, and that's kind of another jumping off point for for companies that are start. Let's say they find product market fit, they're starting mm. to hire salespeople. What's the profile of the type of salesperson that you should hire, and what should that yeah. salesperson be graded and and held accountable to? Yeah. So just. Let me let me kind of back up one second just to finish up that that newer framework and kind of read that that question oh, yeah. in, that, in that in that framework. So so I mentioned it's product market fit, then go to market fit, then growth and moat. And I think we I think we did a good job diving into the product market fit piece. It's all about leading indicators for retention. Mm-hmm. So that that just means that hey, kudos to you. Like you're gonna sell like twenty surgeons next quarter, and eighteen of them are going to use your product every week. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's such an amazing foundation of a business. Kudos to you. You have product market fit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think you're ready to scale sales yet because mm. you need go to market fit. So what is that? It means that you can do that. What we just talked about sign up 20 surgeons and get 18 of them to love your product, like mm. use it every single week, but you can do it profitably. Mm. Right. And so, cause I, in the beginning, like in product market fit, I don't care about profits. I don't care if you're like your whole management team is going to like watch the surgeon use your product. I don't care. Like that's what good entrepreneurs do. Mm-hmm. Like one, one of my friends started uh, drift who's doing amazing right now. Oh yeah. And he's, he's a very famous, he's, he's a, a very famous serial entrepreneur, but in the early phase of his business, David cancel, he was, he was flying to onboard personally customers that were paying him $50 a month as founder. Wow. I mean, pa- Paul Graham, of wa- founder of Y Combinator, says do unscalable things early. And that's a perfect time to do it. Like, I didn't talk about profitability at all. It's like, it's so hard to come up with a business idea and get like 80% of your cu- customers to adopt and see success with it. So throw everything in the kitchen sink at it at that stage. But once you check that box, then we got to prove go-to-market fit, which means we can do it scalably before we start hiring a bunch of salespeople. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I don't know how, and this is another place where I can learn about Omar and like the life science arena, but like in the software arena, we talk about that in terms of unit economics. We don't talk about it in terms of gap accounting. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so gap accounting is more like balance sheet profitability, mm-hmm. but we don't really talk about that in the software startup arena. We talk about unit economics because it separates the non, the costs that are not going to scale when you scale, like the engineers and product and um, like the finance team. Yeah, we're going to have to scale those, but not, not proportionally. Right. So we want to isolate those. It's more like overhead. Right. Mm-hmm. But the unit economics hones in on the ask the costs that are going to scale as we scale our customer base. 
and our machine. Okay. And so, um, we have some complex like terms like payback period. I don't know if they use those in the life sciences in, in the software arena, but, but regardless, we're trying to, like, we're trying to isolate, like, what is our cost to acquire a customer and what is our, what is our profit margin for that customer? We want to make sure that's profitable. So that's what we do next. And unfortunately, this is a big game of lead indicators as well. And it gets to your question, Omar, like, what do these people do mm-hmm. is, you know, we could, we could say, all right, well, I want to have positive unit economics. Well, if I sign up a bunch of customers in Q4 this quarter, I really don't know the unit economics on that until it, it, it plays out a bit. And so right. if I can extract that back to, well, how many meetings a week do I need to hold? And mm-hmm. what's my conversion from stage one to stage two to stage three of my pipeline? And so I can extract that unit economics goal back to these these activity dashboards. And mm-hmm. that will, that will tell me if I'm on good, strong unit economics. And then if I, if the unit economics are checking out, then I can move into growth and moat. Now I'm ready to hire salespeople. So that's it is like product market fit as measured by consistent customer success, mm-hmm. go to market fit as measured by positive unit economics and then growth and moat. And every decision within your go to market design, from your pricing model to your demand gen model to who you hire as a salesperson to how you compensate your salespeople changes as you migrate through. That makes pricing, sense. Like you said, Omar, like it's really, you have to figure out where to focus. Mm-hmm. So as an example, like in product market fit, I don't care about your pricing model. I don't care about your comp plan. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, like it shouldn't be free because these surgeons have to like take it seriously, but we don't need to optimize price right there. All I care, like what really matters is like the types of customers I bring on, like mm-hmm. early adopter types. And I need an, uh, an awesome like onboarding, like you said, a great customer success team. Even if it's just me as founder, I love founders being head of customer success early on for that reason. But then when we move to go to market fit, it's all about pricing and the comp plan and the sales playbook. Mm-hmm. And and the sales rep changes like the first salesperson that I have during the product market fit phase. That person's almost like half product manager, half account exec. They have to go out there and learn yeah. versus and go to market fit. They're much more the coin operated. They have to like let's build the playbook and let's go right. So that that changes. Yeah, and that's and that was something that I found fascinating in your work was that you know. It seemed like in a way, you know, so, so one of the classics that I've read, I've, I always recommend to the people I mentor read crossing the chasm. And then the grandfather yeah. of that is awesome. uh, diffusion, uh, diffusion, diffusion of innovations by Everett nice. Rogers. And it seems like that same technology adoption curve can be overlaid in some, in some ways to, to the model you have, where as you grow, not only do the sale, does the, uh, does the customer profile change because obviously you're, you're going through different customer segments, but the salesperson, that's something I've never heard before, that your salesperson is going to evolve and change. And it's so intuitive, but I don't think anybody's ever, you're the yeah. first person I ever heard talking about it that way. Yeah, it, cha- it changes through a lot of different phases of scale, but the most dramatic fast change is this from, from this product market fit through go-to-market fit to growth and moat. Like your first versus your 10th salesperson is so, so different. Like if you, because, you know, your first one, when I interview my first salesperson, like, honestly, a big part of the interview is like, play with our product and give feedback to the engineers. Mm. Like, that's so key. Like, you don't have product market fit right now. And like, you're about to hire the first person that's going to talk to customers, potential customers all 
day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like no one else, how valuable is that? And if in, and your 10th salesperson is what, you know, this is, this work actually goes back to like the sales learning curve, which was written up 15 years ago in H, HBR. Um, and they called it the Renaissance rep versus the coin operated rep. Interesting. And so your, 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 your 10th salesperson is just like, that's the person who's like, yeah, give me the sales playbook. Give me the comp plan. Tell me who the target customer is and lo- let me go make you and I a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that person's disastrous as the first one because you don't have, you don't have a playbook. You don't even know what you're doing. Like right. that person's going to go out and talk to like 10 surgeons and be like, yeah, your product sucks. No one wants it. Exactly. Cause they're looking, they need a map. They need a map. Yeah. And it sounds like the first salesperson you're talking about. And I love that you said it's a combo of a product ma- manager and a salesperson is that they need to be the ones who figure out how to make the map. Yes. Right. Well, yeah. it's, 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 I would say that's almost the go-to-market fit phase. Sorry for slightly, oh, okay. slightly no, no, no. clarifying is the product during the product market fit. You have to figure out what's this frigging product. Mm. Like what, how do we, you know, and then once you've got the right product and it's successful, when you go to the go-to-market fit phase, remember that's all about creating scale, like doing it scalably. That's when we need the map. That's when we build a playbook. I don't want a sales playbook during the product market fit phase. We have to iterate fast. But once we know what that is, then during the go-to-market fit, I need the playbook before I move to growth, growth and moat. And it sounds like the, during the product market fit, that's that you're, you should not be thinking about salespeople or anything. If anything, that's when the founders are the ones going directly and selling to the customer and getting yeah. as much you know feedback. Yeah, as you possible. can you can have a sales you can have a salesperson. I, I, I it's not bad to have one, um, especially if you're like more of an introverted product you know scientist or something like that, and oh. you're just not not going to be that jazzed about talking to ten customers every day. Um, but this person, they you know they can be the first one doing that. They just have to be cut from a particular thread, you know. Got it. Now I, I want to be, uh, we're, we're, we're definitely good on time, but you know, I don't want to leave everybody on a cliffhanger. So can we, can we cover the last piece of your framework, which is the growth and moat? Yeah. Yeah. So the big problem that people make there is, I don't know if they do this in life science somewhere. You'll have to tell me, but like in software, what happens is they, you know, they hit like, they've kind of checked these boxes maybe accidentally. Right. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they got their stride down and they have like, a million in revenue. They have like, you know, 20 people at the company. There's like two or three salespeople and they go and raise a big round of financing. Mm-hmm. They go raise like a series B, they, they raise like 20 million bucks, you know? And, and during that process, there's a value, there's a valuation negotiation mm-hmm. between them and the new investors and the entrepreneurs always trying to sell the dream and the investors trying to push back and they come to some agreement. But at the end of the day, the entrepreneur sold like the dream. Like we're going to triple revenue every single year and have a huge valuation. And so then they get the money and they're like, oh my gosh, now we have to do this. So what they do is they hire, even though they have three salespeople right now, they hire 15 in the next month. I don't know. They, don't even all, have a playbook. <laughs> they all do this. They, even if they have a playbook, like even if they do, that it's, that's, it's just doesn't work because- just, I mean, and, and the boards encourage this too. Cause it's they want to, like, they want to go scale growth and revenue. Yeah. Right? They, and they, they don't realize like folks, can we just step back for a second? Like you're, you're, you're hiring 15. So how many, how many interviews is that? Like how many persp- candidates do like, that's probably like a hundred, hundred candidates that need to be screened at, at least, at yeah. least. 
And then by the way, who's going to train them and manage them? Mm-hmm. 15 people? Like, do you even have a manager? And then by the way, you're Aria Omar. Where's the demand gen? Like these three reps, like you, you, your marketing team right now is generating like, you know, 30 leads a month for these three reps. And then like, now you have 18 reps. Mm-hmm. You think your marketing team is just going to be able to snap their fingers and create 300 leads in a month. And it's just disastrous. It's disastrous. Absolutely. And I got to, so, so, I got to say, I gotta say this because yeah, you'll get a kick out of this. And I tell, tell this to audience, marketing will definitely snap their fingers and go get those 300 leads through an ebook download and not demos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It'll be, it'll be lower qualified stuff. Maybe they'll, they'll throw a bunch of money at pay-per-click or something. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, uh, so, and they just won't be quality. It won't be tested, all that kind of stuff. So, so, so the, the growth and moat phase, it's scale is about a pace. It's about mm-hmm. a pace of hiring, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what, what I encourage people to do, and we do this with all our portfolio companies. I've done this for years with companies is, don't hire the 15 reps like next month. Hire one rep, hire ideally like two reps every other month. And that could be changed. You, you could do one a month. You could do two every other month. You could do two a month. Like it's a pace, not a one-time event. So let's hire two reps every other month for six months. And then let's watch the early indicator attention that we set up for product market fit and the early indicators of unit economics that we set up for go-to-market fit. And if those numbers, if those early indicators stay green while we hire those two reps every other month for six months, then let's go to two reps every month and let's go to four reps every month after six months. Right. So, so we're, we're, that's kind of, I call it our spinometer. Those early mm. indicators are spinometer. It tells us how fast we can go. And if, if it breaks, we're going to know really early because most businesses, they're evaluating whether or not they're going too fast or too slow by the end of quarter P and L. Mm. And that is like, so the end of quarter PL is what we did six months ago. Yeah. It's not reflective of what's going on in our business right now. Yeah. So, so anyway, that, that, that's kind of the, the last point. And, um, you know, we can get into the granularity of like what it means for a go-to-market design, but that's, that's the high level, you know, big mistake on the growth and moat phase. Yeah. And it sounds, you know, the one thing that uh, it sounds like is it, I think if there's a, if there's a theme to the framework that you just shared again, that's, uh, product market fit, go to market fit, and then growth of mode is is discipline. And 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 let me because I can I can some of my friends uh, they just they just you know raise a Series A for some of their their companies. I can hear them in my head, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna channel that question that they're probably gonna be asking, which is okay. What do you tell investors when they say, well, we really want to see fast growth, so why aren't you hiring more salespeople? What, what, what would you counsel an entrepreneur? How would they push back and explain? Oh my gosh. I go into so many, like I, this is like the thing I have to do after every round that our portfolio does, or even like the companies <laughs> that I'm on the board as I have to go in the board meeting and, and sort of facilitate this discussion because the investors say, Oh yeah, we're not going fast enough. Like my, I had one successful investment eight years ago and that's what we did. We hired 15 reps. Like, you know, it's like, so, so I just have to do exactly what we said, Omar. It's like, hey, folks, just like, let's take a step back and let's just do the math on like how many phone screens that is and where's the demand going to come from. And I can show you in very simple Excel how this is not going to work. And I know at the end of the day, all you want to do is do a triple, triple, double, double, as they say where you live, Omar, out in San Francisco, which is triple, <laughs> triple revenue in year one and two and double revenue in year three and four. That's fine. I'll get you your triple, triple, double, double. We're going to do it through this pace of hiring. Like, let's put together the Excel model and let's just show, like, if we hire two reps every other month for the first six months and then two reps every month 
for the next six months and then four reps a month for the next six months, we get a triple, triple, double, double. And, you know, I'm not saying that's exactly what we have to do. We're going to set up this plan and we're going to set up the speedometer. And guess what? If like, if, if we're looking good after four months, we can go faster. Mm-hmm. But guess what? If after six months we're hiring two reps every the month and all the speedometer is red, I don't think we should go to two reps every, every month. Yeah, now you're burning money left and right. Exactly. And, and, you know, and it's not like these are cogs in a wheel. These are people. So mm-hmm. that's going to affect culture. That's going to affect a lot of things. You know, somebody who is really successful, it may just be that they are just getting lucky or they're in the right geography. And that might mislead you in terms of how you should uh, uh, essentially set up your, your sales training and management program. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So this at the end of the day, it's called the science of scaling. Right. It's just a a more data. I think you said discipline, Omar. I would just say it's data driven and scientific on how you, because otherwise, like, how are people go ask your buddies, like, how, when do you scale sales and how fast? See what they say. Like, they don't, no one really has a good answer to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I I hear, I hear your, um, I want to call it frustration, but I could hear in your voice the same kind of frustration I have within my industry, which is there's a lot of, pseudoscience bullshit being taught, you know, thrown around where it's like, Oh, you know, we're seeing success here. So th- we should focus on this one thing. And at the end of the day, it, it's not, it's not difficult to sit down and just either through a spreadsheet or just put it on paper and say, Hey, let's just reverse engineer and think about how this would actually work and play it out. And I think, I don't think that a lot of people do that anymore. I think, no. I don't know if it's because I, I feel that with the advent of the internet, and social yeah. media and all these things, you know, we're living in a faster and faster world. Right. And I think because of that, our brains have just been completely conditioned to just get, you know, restless and not patient and just immediately want to jump to things right away. I catch myself all the time sometimes doing that. And I'm like, what am I doing? I just started, you know, doing this one task. Why am I trying to jump already to the end? Yeah. Do you feel like, do you, do you feel that? Yeah, I think, I think there's a little that, bit of blitz, there's a little bit of blitz scaling like pressure, you know, like, and I love, I love Christie in the book and it's awesome. And I think you have to, you have to have some notion of like blitz scaling, but like there needs to be some. Can you tell us a little bit more? Blitz scaling is like, it's just like what we talked about. It's just like, you got to go way more faster than you're comfortable with because like his argument. And I think there's some, some, something to this is like, given the, the global economy we live in, given like the fact that we can, you and I could like call someone in China right now and have like a face to, you know, face to face conversation with them. That, that wasn't always the case. And, you know, we could buy stuff from across the globe as well. Right. So you're, what he's basically arguing is like, there's every single industry and category um, has a little bit of a network effect and winner take all. Mm-hmm. Now I don't, I don't agree that it's as extreme as he claims. And he, he was a, involved reed hoffman was his co-author so it's very linkedin influence so it's like um uh of course they come from more of a network effect place but he he's just kind of arguing that like that little niche software business in like alabama is gonna that doesn't exist anymore because we're too global and i I, you know they do exist like i i don't fully agree but we feel that pressure we feel that pressure that that's the only way to do entrepreneurship and it's not it's not like you know you don't have to like rapidly you know, you don't always have to be on the rapid scale mode. You want to be moving as fast as possible. But sometimes that fast as possible is how fast you're learning, you know? So absolutely. No, I completely agree. And I, at least even in our industry, some of the most wildly successful companies, they got there. I mean, one 
people people uh, <laughs> talk smack about them all the time, but you got to respect their their execution. Is Intuitive Surgical the first uh, the inventors of the Da Vinci? It's, you know, they're an eighty billion dollar company now, and they got there because they were incredibly, incredibly disciplined as to who they sold to, how they sold it. You know, um, so I think there's something to be said about that. Mark, we have ten minutes left. I want to be respectful of your time, and so I kind of want to jump into. Um, a little bit of rapid questions, if that's okay. If there's, sure, if there's, let's do it. Rapid fire. Yeah. And so, you know, you can take as long as you want to answer these questions uh, or as short as you want. That'll just take us to the next question. But before we get to that real quick, and I'll leave it in the show notes, your new, your latest book, uh, is it is it available is it available at this point? Yeah. No, I haven't written that one yet. It's in the form of a 40-page ebook, and you can see it on Stage 2 Capital's website. It's right in the homepage called The Science of Scaling. Um, so you can download that stuff for free and just check it out. Oh, perfect. I'll leave that in the show notes around with the mm-hmm. sales acceleration cool. formula yeah, uh, and, and, and your, and your uh, 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 Twitter and LinkedIn handle as well. So my first question to you is that, you know, there's no doubt looking at your, at your background career, you've, you've been in a variety of places and, and, you know, you're, you're a vet at this point because of your, your experience. Along the way, you probably had some great mentors. What was the most painful yet illuminating advice a mentor ever gave you? Um, you know, I think early on in my management experience, I recognized, um, you know, personally, I have a really, um, uh, an issue with giving negative feedback, like what do I call it? Like, uh, of conflict avoidance, mm. you know, like psych- Yeah, I know you, you said you read some of the psychology books and stuff and like, it definitely is rooted in aspects of my childhood where this happened and, you know, it's certainly, it holds you back in a lot of aspects of life, but certainly um, in management, you know, if you have conflict avoidance, that's terrible. Mm. And so, um, you know, you have to work through those things. So I literally for years had a daily task to give negative feedback to someone. Mm. Wow. So on a daily basis, you had to give negative feedback at least once. So you you literally psychologically condition your brain to just get used to that, to that wincing feeling. And I read a lot about how to give good feedback and negative feedback and that kind of stuff. And yeah, I just had to do it every day. Well, you know, so you, you, you did that every single day. What, what was the biggest, biggest thing you learned? Just, you have to root in a very specific example. It's like, this is again, psychology. And if you read like parenting books, it's no different than management books. It's like, you you (laughs) don't want to say like, Omar, you're lazy. Omar, you don't work hard. Like that's, that's labeling you. It's just like, Omar, I noticed that yesterday you came in at nine 30 for the third time in a row. Like it's a specific behavior or Mm. Omar. I know like I was reviewing your, um, your prospecting uh, emails and, they are not abiding by the personalization standards that we, we want, for example, here, here, and here. They just need to be more specific. Got it. You know, as opposed to like, you're not a good prospector. Right. And sorry, I can't help but do this, but this goes back again to another incredibly valuable, this is another piece I took from your book was that when you talk about training salespeople, um, you don't, you don't just throw up on them about the 10 or 50 things that you're doing wrong. Yeah. You do it like a, like, like in golf where you focus on yeah. one specific skill and try and prove that and then move on, which I think there's exactly. a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. I think across any management, but that was certainly the case for me as I watched managers, I think at its peak, I had maybe like 
35 managers under me, right? So it was just a lot of like data points of seeing how people gave feedback. And um, yeah, that was the big difference was like some of them would just get off the sales call and like, like, okay, all right, Omar, here's all your feedback. And they'd rattle off for an hour and like nothing gets done. It's just, you yeah. can't absorb that. You walk away and it's like, okay, I suck. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, just, it's just very logical. And that's one thing that my mentor helped me see too with the golf analogy is like, yeah, you can see the 80 things that are broken, but like, what's the one thing that's, that's going to make the biggest difference. That's the real um, management excellence is when you can identify that one thing and hone your coaching on that, get them through that, whether it takes a week, a month or six months and then move on to the next thing. Got it. Got it. Now I'm going to kind of flip that. And you're also a mentor to many people uh, just in your, your professional network, but obviously with all the startups and entrepreneurs at uh, UN State to capital invest in what's kind of like the most common theme that you see with these entrepreneurs that you feel that, you know, you're always having to address. I think like in our arena, especially out by you, it's, it's still the same thing that it was 20 years ago, which is if they, if you build it, they will come, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs are product oriented mm-hmm. and they just feel like the product should sell itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think as they get mature, um, they, um, uh, they realize that you need a world-class product team, you need a world-class sales team. And they start to get a sense of what that is. Um, I think the other one that's interesting that I see when I compare new first-time entrepreneurs and serial entrepreneurs is um, first-time entrepreneurs might be, they have like a product idea and they're obsessed with it and they want to build it and they think it's just going to work versus serial entrepreneurs are more obsessed with a problem. Mm, right. Very more obsessed with like, there's like, cause it's just, you know, if you have an awesome product idea and you build it, it may or may not work. No one will know. Um, mm. But if you focus on a, a really important problem, then the question is whether you actually solve it. But regardless, it's, pr- it's much easier to pick a problem worth solving. And that's what I think serial entrepreneurs do. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we're getting close to the top of the hour again. I want to uh, really appreciate you spend some time with us. I mean, you came in late last night from San Diego, so I appreciate you getting up and mm-hmm. doing this. So my last question to you is this, is that, um, you know, I want you to imagine that throughout the United States, for a full year, um, you will have one billboard and that billboard will be seen by every entrepreneur, every marketer, everybody in the tech and startup world. And, you know, every day when they wake up, they go into work or they're outside of their house, there's this billboard. What message would you put in on that bill? That's a good question, man. I don't know. Like, I'd have to think about a cool way to say customer success before revenue or something. I like what's wrong with customer success. That's right. It's pretty good. I like, I think something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, I think that's really, I think, I I don't know. I, I I think that's really good. Yeah. Something like that. I think I'd probably come up with something a little catchier, but something along those lines. (laughs) You definitely, you definitely are in marketing, but from that, well, you know, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming on and spending some time with us. Um, I'm selfishly going to try and get you back on again in the near future, especially when, um, uh, it was a science scale, correct? Yeah. So that, that science is not scale, available yeah. yet as an ebook or it is. Yeah, it is available as an ebook it on is. my website, on stage two's website. Yeah. You can oh, check fantastic. It out I'll, I'll yeah, leave that. Haven't published it yet. I'll work on that after we raise our second fund here about halfway through. Yeah. It's not like you don't have enough to do already. <laughs> <laughs> Got to take them one step at a time. 
Absolutely. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, give me one second. I'll chat with you right when I uh, hit the uh, uh, end button. So thank you all for joining us. Um, and thank you, Mark, for, for coming on. Thanks, Omar.